The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Energy and air pollution will be one of the top five issues for the general election. We talk about Putin being in control. He's not really. It's the various factions under him, and it suits them to have him at the front. You're trying to save our house deposit, and you'd have to save up some crazy amount of money. How on earth are you going to do that if a pint is £7? There are certain key things that we want from India, and there are certain key things that they want from us. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Lizzie Burden. Lizzie, do you have a favourite number? I'm worried where you're going with this. Now, this is producer James' obsession. He's complaining that he has to remember Keir Starmer's five economic priorities from yesterday and James Cavalier's five-point plan to stop immigration. But they're not the only fives. Remember, you've got uh, the big five pledges from Rishi Sunak at the start of the year, Keir Starmer's five missions, Sunak's five-point plan to fight migration back in March. Remember that one? Possibly not. Last month, the Prime Minister made another five long-term decisions to grow the economy. Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick has a rival five-point plan to stop migrants that he says was blocked last September. And Jeremy Hunt's five pillars of economic growth. And don't forget Tony Blair's uh, pledge card in 1997, the granddaddy of the five-point plans. Exactly. It's nothing new. It's so basic, producer James. You really need to can (laughs) this analysis. Look, five's just an easy number. It's not too few, but it's enough to simplify a complex plan. But I think it is interesting to think about how politicians want to communicate their big plans to to fix everything. We gave you a preview of the Resolution Foundation event yesterday, so it's only right that we're going to tell you what happened. Labour leader Keir Starmer said he will not backtrack on plans to borrow £28 billion to invest in green infrastructure. He said he would be ruthless when it comes to coming through his party spending plans. Okay, but both parties are emphasising how constrained the fiscal situation is heading into the general election. So the question for Labour is, if you want to keep the Tories tax cuts and you need to fund all the spending pledges that your front bench has made, which taxes are you going to raise and will you need to borrow more, more than the bond market will be comfortable with? And likewise for the government, which public services are you going to cut to fund your tax cuts? Yeah, I think it's interesting on the point of Labour tax rises. Labour's already referred to the need for those with the broadest shoulders to carry the biggest load. Will that be part of Starmer's uh, economic rethink, the words he uses? Well, it is a key question. Analysis by the Wealth Club, which is a high net worth investment service, found that just 100,000 wealthy individuals 
paid £55 billion of all income and capital gains taxes. And that is nigh on a quarter of the total. So the Wealth Club says it's a myth that wealthy individuals don't already pay their fair share of tax. And separate research from the 100 Group, which represents a collection of the UK's biggest public and private companies, says that investment by Britain's top firms has also gone down over the past year. Their analysis shows that the 100 biggest companies saw their tax real tax bill rise by seven and a quarter percent in the past year to a total of 90 billion pounds that is about a tenth of all of the government's tax receipts so i guess the key question is how do you stimulate growth and investment if you're going to tax business more yeah well these are the fiscal fault lines that are going to shape the next election as it appears at the moment privately tory aides are telling me they're confident that keir starmer is not as hot on the economy as rishi sunak given that the prime minister is of course former chancellor but they do recognize that rachel reeves a shadow chancellor is a formidable opponent and they say that this is going to be the first normal election since 2015 at least they, they're far warier of starmer than they were of jeremy corbyn well, let's talk about one, maybe two of those five-point plans, and that is on uh, immigration, which has very much been in the news uh, these past few weeks. Uh, ben Brindle is researcher at the Migration Observatory at the University of Oxford. Ben, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Now, James cleverly touched down in Rwanda this morning, but we'll come to the government's plans on illegal immigration later. I want to start with his new announcements on legal migration last night. Yeah, they include raising the salary threshold for work visa entrants and stopping health and social care workers from bringing dependents, as it has already for students. Now, clearly, the idea is to reduce the number of non-working immigrants. And cleverly says the aim is to reduce annual net migration, immigration, I should say, by 300,000 in future years. So not setting out a precise timetable here. So let's start there. Ben, thanks for joining us. Labour's target is for 200,000 net migrants, they say. So is the government actually taking a softer stance on migration than the opposition? Well, I think it's important to note that there is no right or wrong level uh, of net migration it comes down to priorities essentially and that's a, a political choice so whether a stance is, is softer or not is yeah much more political rather than um being weighted in sort of statistics and data um what i would say as well is that with both of uh these sort of targets um net migration is expected to fall anyway and so the degree to which changes made by either party are responsible for net migration falling um, is quite difficult to tell because, as I say, net migration, we're expecting to, to fall in coming years anyway. So put it in a different way, is Labour trying to bring the total down further than the Conservatives want to, or are there some numbers that I'm missing? Uh, I guess based on the 200,000 versus the, the Conservative reduction of 300,000, then Labour's um, amount would be lower. Um, whether these things can actually happen in reality uh, is difficult mm -hmm. to say. It depends on which uh, other measures are taken. And so that, that might be the aim. But what happens in practice is we'd have to, to wait and see. Ben, what do you make of the government's announcement yesterday? The the, the changes, radical changes, it would say, uh, on the on the migration system. And, 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 and what do you what's your take on the 300,000 that they claim it will reduce the numbers by? I'm not sure on the specifics of the 300,000. As I say, we expect net migration to fall in the coming years anyway. That's essentially because the high immigration we're seeing at the moment, people coming to the UK, should translate in 
the years ahead to more emigration, so people leaving the UK, and that will bring uh, net migration uh, down in the years ahead. But on the specific proposals, I think two things um, sort of jumped out to me. The first is the care sector because of uh, how important it is for um, sort of work visas, how big a, a part it, it plays. The other thing uh, being the change in the minimum income requirement. So the amount that um, people uh, in the UK, either Brits or people with a valid visa, need to earn in order for their, their dependents, their, their partner and children to join them. That was something that we weren't uh, really expecting. Unison, the union, has said that the plan's cruel and it's going to spell disaster for health and social care. Do you think we're actually likely to see more NHS staff shortages if workers can't bring their families, even though they apparently have an exception for this salary threshold? And do you therefore think that NHS waiting lists will grow? So my understanding is that the restriction on dependence uh, applies to care workers and senior care workers. And I think there's a bit of a slight difference between these two. So for care workers, uh, I wouldn't expect too much of an impact on the ability of care providers to recruit. And that's essentially because there's a big pool of people um, who are willing and able to come to the UK to work as care workers. And so although some people may no longer want to work in the UK, there are lots of other people um, who would be willing to instead. With senior care workers, it's maybe a little tricky because um, some of these people are qualified nurses in their home countries, and now the prospect of the UK might become uh, less attractive. So it's possible perhaps more for senior care workers though than for care workers uh, just more generally. Ben, are you surprised by the levels of EU migration? There's actually net emigration from uh, EU nationals. Clearly, we've we've changed the rules, but but immigration is open to EU nationals in, in in the same way that it is from the rest of the world. Do you think it's surprising that Europeans are choosing not to come here? I think maybe we wouldn't have expected uh, net emigration. Certainly, following uh, the end of the pandemic, but I guess it, it does make sense that uh, the amount uh, of net migration from the EU has fallen. You know, it's become more difficult uh, to come to the UK, both on the basis of um, the type of job that someone needs before under freedom of movement. Um, it was fairly easy depending on the job, low paid jobs were, were eligible, that's not the case now. And then there weren't costs and bureaucracy either. So I think it certainly makes sense that the number of EU citizens coming to the UK has fallen, uh, whether to quite this much, um, perhaps weren't expecting that, but it's fairly early days in the in the post-Brexit immigration system, so perhaps it will, it will change over time. Do these latest rules make economic sense? Are they going to reduce pressure on public services and actually ensure that only economically productive migrants come to Britain? Or is it really just political posturing before a general election? So when it comes to public services, the research that is available on this topic suggests that the impact of migration is actually quite small. So there might be um, slight pressures uh, in certain areas, but generally it's not much at all. And that's because migrants don't just use public services, but they contribute um, to those uh, as well. Um, in terms of the type of people that come to the UK and the impact on the economy more broadly, I think research generally shows that um, higher skilled and uh, migrants working in higher paid jobs tend to have more benefits, um, particularly on things around productivity. But 
again, this is sort of also tinkering around at the margins. It plays some role, but domestic policies play a much bigger role. Could you actually see a dash to come to the UK before these new rules kick in in the spring? It's possible that that's the case, yeah. So with a change which had been previously announced before yesterday with the restriction on a a large number of students being able to bring dependents, pretty much all students except for those uh, studying PhDs, um, one of the things which which we predicted um, at the Migration Observatory that we could see is that people coming in uh, to beat the, the threshold, which are the, the new rules, which come in on the 1st of January. That could, could indeed be the case um, with the rules that were announced yesterday. Um, but it depends, uh, I guess, on how aware people are in their home countries of these changes um, actually coming in, uh, coming into force. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. That's Ben Brindle, who's a researcher at the Migration Observatory at the University of Oxford. Now, as we mentioned earlier, James Cleverley is now in Rwanda. The Home Secretary is set to sign a new treaty to try and resuscitate the government's flagship asylum policy after it was ruled unlawful by the UK Supreme Court. Well, Bloomberg's East Africa correspondent Ondira Uganda joins us now from Kigali in Rwanda. Now, I want to understand what the reaction's like in Rwanda to the news of the past few weeks. Well, thank you. Um, Currently, the mood is cautiously optimistic, if I do say so, because um, up until this morning, the government was very harsh about the arrival of James Cleverley and the confirmation only came later on today. We saw him jet into the country. He went to the genocide memorial, then headed out straight to meetings. And from the press briefing that we were given, We were told that um, there'll be a signing ceremony of the Migration and Economic Development Partnership Treaty. And this is where it gets interesting because we're hearing that there is um, renegotiations of the agreement to a binding treaty that ensures that Rwanda will not expel asylum seekers who are sent over from Britain. And this is after the Supreme Court raised concerns of a refoulement. Now, the government of Rwanda did not take this lightly, and it said the criticism that Rwanda received, particularly from the UNHCR, was unjust and hypocritical, and it maintains that its policies, particularly on refugees, are very inclusive. There have also been reports that there'll be British lawyers who will be based here in Rwanda to ensure that the asylum seekers are safe and are not expelled. The government spokesperson, Yolande Makolo, says this is incorrect and the treaty does not have such provisions. So currently, I think the goal of the government is to get the treaty over the line and reinforce guarantees on the existing concerns that were raised by the Supreme Court. I'm really glad we've got you on, Ondiro, because I feel like we rarely get the Rwandan perspective on all of this. Why did Rwanda even want to do this deal? What's in it for the other side? Well, listening to the government, they've always maintained that they know how hard it is to go through a tumultuous time as a country many Rwandans 29 years ago during the genocide, hard to seek refuge outside of Rwanda. So they understand that sometimes home is not home and they're trying to offer a second home. The government spokesperson, Yolanda Makolo, says currently over 130,000 refugees are here and more keep arriving. And what they're working towards is integrating them into the community. But that does not come cheap or it does not come free. The agreement that they have 
with the government of the UK comes with a good sum of money. So they're looking to also make some money off of it and invest it into the Rwandan economy to unlock its potential, not just for Rwandans, but for the refugees that they take in. It's also important to know that Europe currently has a refugees problem. Many more small boats are arriving. And if this deal is a success, then we are likely to see Rwanda pitch more to have more asylum seekers from Europe come to Rwanda. Yeah, on that issue, as you mentioned, the UK is not the only European country ex- ex- exploring this this kind of scenario. How do people feel in Rwanda about the idea of the Global North outsourcing its migrants? Well, it's important to note that um, the public perception here can be a little bit um, deceiving. You just can't take it at face value. But what we've heard from the government through and through is that they are committed to ensuring that... Um, Rwanda becomes a place where people can get a second home, they can reintegrate into the society, they can build an alternative life for themselves as opposed to risking their life and crossing the Sahara, crossing the ocean and getting to Europe and finding that things might not have been what they perceived. However, it's also important to note that some of the people who are here, particularly the refugees who are here, they have mixed feelings. While they are grateful for the sanctuary that um, Rwanda has offered them and the safety, unlike places that they were in Libya as they were trying to cross to Europe, they say that this is not their final destination. More than anything, majority of them are still committed to finding their way to Europe. All right, Ondiro Oganga, thanks so much for joining us. I'm so glad we could get your analysis from Kigali in Rwanda. That's our Bloomberg East Africa correspondent, Ondiro Oganga. Now, Rishi Sunak has suffered his first parliamentary defeat since becoming Prime Minister. MPs, including 22 Conservative rebels, back to move to speed up compensation for victims of the NHS-infected blood scandal. The vote was on an amendment to the Victims and Prisoners Bill. Yeah, the government says that there's a moral case for compensating victims of the scandal, and it's agreed to make the first interim payment of £100,000 each to 4,000 surviving victims and bereaved partners. But it said it wanted to wait for the infected blood inquiry to conclude before setting up a full scheme. So it'll now have to set up a new body to deal with the payouts within three months of this bill becoming law. Now, you remember up to 30,000 people were given infected blood in the 70s and 80s and more than 3,000 people have died after contracting HIV or hepatitis C following infected blood transfusion on the NHS. So Brian Langstaff, who's leading the inquiry, had been due to report in November, but while that's been pushed back to next March, he's already made clear his recommendations on compensation and said the government did not need to wait for the conclusions before setting up a scheme. The Tory rebels included Sir Robert Buckland, Damien Green and Dame Andrea Jenkins. They're big names. When you think about the report uh, on the polling that Alex Wickham wrote, saying that Rishi Sunak's polling worse than Liz Truss, mm. you've got to wonder whether it's squeaky chair time over at number 10. Yeah, that was quite eye-opening, wasn't it, really? Because I think most Tories think those days back at the end of last year were kind of, things couldn't get any worse than that. This is only one poll, but it's, it's, it's pretty bad for the government. Yeah. Right, well, let's switch focus now and get some analysis on the sizeable problems facing Britain's biggest water company. Thames Water's debt pile is now £14.7 billion, with the utility facing increasing scrutiny over the stability of its financing structure. The company supplies millions of households in London and surrounding areas, and back in October, it said bills will need to rise by 40% by the end of the decade. Well, joining us now to discuss is Bloomberg's Jess Shankleman. Jess, just how much hot water is Thames Water in? 
Oh, this industry is just ripe for puns, isn't it? So, <laughs> yeah, Thames Water <laughs> is very much back in the spotlight this week. And also last week, we had some stories out about Kemble, which is Thames' owner. We've got a very Byzantine, complicated structure uh, to try and get your head around. And you also have to try and understand uh, how the industry is regulated to try and understand how much hot water they're in. So the reason Thames said that bills are going to have to rise by 40% in October is that they want to invest over £18 billion in the five years to 2030 to tackle all sorts of things like sewage spills, leakages, customer service. They want to build a new reservoir. They've got this hugely ambitious plan, which is spending more money you know, than they ever have before on, on uh, addressing all these problems. But in order to, to be able to do that, they need to get approval from Ofwat. And Ofwat is the industry regulator. They have to look at all these plans and say, OK, this looks credible. You're not spending money that you previously said you were going to spend and you're not going to be charging bill payers twice. And therefore, yes, that's enough. You can raise bills 40%. And that's where a lot of the money is going to come from to be able to do this. Now, if they can get that money, that means that their shareholders will stump up the equity which is the 750 million that they desperately need over the next two years to try and uh, deliver this three-year turnaround plan that they've announced today. Jess, I'm going to avoid the obvious, obvious pun, but how did they get into so much mess? Um, well, to look at how Thames Water got into so much mess, you have to go back to privatisation. So when um, privatisation happened in the 1990s as an industry, all the debt was the debt slates were wiped clean, and. Um, Companies, uh, these companies were invested in by the likes of Macquarie, particularly in the instance of Thames Water, and they built up a lot of debt. And critics say they built up a lot of debt and, they, and the investors took out dividends and says, well, you know, that's the way the industry works. That's what they had to do. And they, they, when, when Macquarie left in, the 2000, in the, I think it was 2007, um, they just left Thames with a lot of debt. The other issue is that people in the UK are used to having very low water bills. We actually comparatively don't pay a lot of money for our water. And Thames Water and other water companies say, well, you know, we would have invested in upgrading all this stuff, but everyone wanted really cheap bills. So we kept the bills really low, but now we've got terrible infrastructure. And in the last couple of years, particularly around COVID, people started to notice the levels of pollution. It was also because the government um, started requiring that um, sewage spills were monitored more closely. And... So now there's huge public outcry around leakages, sewage spills, and the industry is really on the back foot and is trying to fix this. Well, you've reminded me of my favourite film, The Big Short. And at the end, when it's revealed that Michael Burry is investing in water, is it actually fair? Does it make sense that they should charge more for water? This thing that we couldn't live without? So, yeah, I mean, you could look at it like that rainfalls from the sky. We could just have it straight straight off like that. It's not like electricity where it has to be generated somewhere, but it does need to be treated. And, um, we, you know, we have the pipes that take away our water um, from our toilets and from our sinks, and they also combine with all the water that's falling into the ground. Um, I think it is, it is fair that we are charged for it. I think there's a, a long-standing question about whether our bills recognise the true value of water. And when I talk to people in the industry, they say that actually, yes, there is a huge uh, economic crisis at the moment, there's a huge cost of living crisis, but generally people do accept that the need to pay a bit more for their water. 
The challenge that these companies are facing, though, is that they've got such bad reputations, they really haven't delivered on sewage, they haven't delivered on leakages, but customers are saying, why should we pay? You should have fixed this before. And I think a lot of, a lot of the challenge that they're facing is perception. Um, the industry hasn't been able to provide a good narrative about what it's doing. It's, tr- it's trying to do that now. Um, but there's a huge amount of public anger. And Catherine Ross, the CEO of Thames, I was talking to her this morning, she's talked about how when they try to talk to customers about these things, these kind of quite exciting things they want to do, because bear in mind they've been criticised in the past for lack of ambition. Now they're saying, all right, OK, these are all the things we're going to do. They can't even get to those, those conversations because people are so angry. So they've really kind of locked themselves into a very difficult situation here where they're, they've caused themselves so much trouble that people just want them to fix it and they don't want to hear their excuses anymore. Jess, clearly this company's too big and important to, to fail. How, how does Thames get out of this pickle and, and what will it end up meaning for customers? So, yes, the ne- over the next couple of months, is a real crunch point for Thames. Um, a couple of things we're going to be expecting. First of all, I think the big, big thing is we're expecting a new CEO because, remember, Sarah Bentley abruptly quit, which was forced out in July. So Catherine Ross um, is actually the interim, one of the interim CEOs. And um, so we're expecting a new CEO. Then in March, Thames has said that they are expecting £500 million in equity from shareholders. Um, that's the first tranche of the £750 million that they've said that they're going to hope to get over the next two years. If they can get that equity, that will help bring them, reduce that, that huge debt pile that, they, that they've built up that we reported on today. But it's, it's really not a given because last week, Kemble, who is Thames' owner... Their auditors, they, they released their, their financial results and their auditors were saying, we have no idea where their money's going to come from in April. They may w- well run out of money in April. Now, I spoke to um, Thames this morning about that and they said, Alistair Cochran, who's the other acting CEO and also the CFO, he said, no, Thames is completely ring-fenced from, from Kemble and there's other ways of raising that finance. And, you know, what the auditors warned was just a kind of, uh, a normal a normal warning and we shouldn't read too much into it but how can you not so basically should we be worried about other water companies could they go water i think that thames is uh definitely in the worst situation it's the, by far the biggest player in the market the other one i would be looking at um is is southern water so Southern Water, which is now owned by Macquarie, which has said is not going anywhere. They're going to invest. They're going to. They've got a big turnaround plan. They're going to put a lot of equity in. They're going to sell their first new bond um, since March 2021. So that's um, companies getting <laughs> another company already heavily indebted. They've had to stop issuing dividends. Um, that's an that's order from Offwatt. Uh, they're planning to get into even more debt. So I think. Well, you know, what we saw earlier this year in the summer, there was a huge amount of concern about the water industry. That kind of ebbed away slightly um, over the autumn. But now going into the new year, I think there's going to be a huge amount of focus again on the water companies. Jess, thank you so much for your analysis. That's Bloomberg's Jess Shankerman. Well, that is it for us today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Woolcock and our audio engineer was Marie For Hussain. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Ewan Potts. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Hi, everyone. 
I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.